peace be with you and with your spirit. Welcome to our next portion in our Nature Mysticism mini-episodes. So now I want to discuss another key theme when it comes to the mystics and how they approach nature. I'm also saying mystics, but by and large, this is kind of general Christianity. So another concept here is that nature becomes divinized. Or to put it a little better, nature becomes even more divinized through Christ's arrival, through his incarnation. So the concept that Christ's incarnation divinized all of creation, that's intriguing, but it's also very traditional. You'll see this throughout theology, throughout saints, throughout church fathers. And essentially the teaching is as follows. Since the divine logos, which is the inspiration, the icon, the prototype for all of creation, since it became flesh, God's presence in the realm alone in some ways glorified it and blessed it, or at the very least, now nature and matter has a new frame of importance in the world. And this does make sense from what we've seen in the Old Testament and other scriptural, apocryphal, and non-texts where God is too powerful for us to see. So this discusses the power of God, and now God is taking flesh. So God merely experiencing and seeing nature, even the nature he didn't see, is still becoming divinized merely by his presence on earth. Also, and this will go into future episodes on things like nature of suffering, his pain also in a way becomes divinized. But now that everything is divinized, we can lift it back up, which yes, we can lift our pain and suffering back up in a redemptive suffering. But means of this episode, it means we can lift up nature as well. So one concept I like here is St. John of Damascus, and he used nature being divinized as a defense of the use of religious icons for Christians. So there was this big debate that Christians shouldn't be able to basically make icons of religious figures. However, John argued that we are all icons of God's love, and the incarnation is proof of that. The incarnation deified matter to a certain degree. Therefore, all of creation and all of matter has a holy aspect to it. So for John and many others, the incarnation was a sign of the universe becoming full of the presence of God. To quote St. John, all the bits and pieces of the tangible world sanctified by the God-man can now become conduits of divine grace. Wherever we look, we may see the substance of God's actions in wood, in paint, in robes, in cups, nature infused with grace everywhere. He continues, I do not venerate matter. I venerate the fashioner of matter, who became matter for my sake and accepted to dwell in matter and through matter worked my salvation. I will not cease from reverencing matter through which my salvation was worked. And some were quick to call pantheism. However, John replied, just as iron plunged in fire does not become fire by nature, but by union and burning and participation. So what is deified does not become God by nature, but by participation. 
Nothing is worthy of reverence in its own right, but everything can be a vessel of holy presence. And this is essentially panentheism, which we will get to a bit later. But I really like this, and I really like the participatory aspect, because this kind of view of cosmology is participatory. We are here to lift things back up to God, also to reveal the face of God's love and to suffer lovingly on behalf of others. But there's that participatory nature and aspect of it. And here he also mirrors this concept that all of nature, all of matter, is a vessel for God. And this is kind of a fun fact. I didn't know where else to put it in this little mini-series. Um, but there is this concept, and again, it is mostly artistic and poetic. It's not really doctrinal. And it occurs around the resurrection rather than the incarnation. But you'll read some accounts of Christ's death and resurrection, and there are things like an eclipse happening or an earthquake or all these natural disasters. And in some lore, this was because during the fall, some demons or pagans or fallen pagan gods or fallen angels, they would man the sun, moon, and stars. But after Christ's defeat of hell, now the saints and angels are the ones controlling the sun, moon, and stars. So again, this is just a poetic rendering. It's never been doctrinal. In fact, I think there's probably some issues in saying that demons were, were controlling the moon and sun. But you see this in art sometimes. Sometimes in art you will see how um, the sun and moon on Christ's uh, death on Mount Golgotha, they'll have a face, and that's usually what it's tying to. Just thought I'd throw that one in there. And again, it was always poetic, artistic. It was never a true teaching. So the main takeaway about nature being divinized is that God's prototype for all of creation, his logos, his inspiration, it entered earth as Christ and sanctified it merely by existing here. And some, like Bonaventure and Irenaeus, they would say that Christ's incarnation would have occurred regardless of the fall. So God's logos coming to earth was always intended to be a cosmic and sanctifying event in God's plan. The death and the death and resurrection likely would have been different if it wouldn't have occurred at all. And it may have been just a friendly, we're now going to go back to be with the Father. I'm not sure. We don't know what would have happened, but... Regardless, the plan all along was for the Logos to come and sanctify all of matter and creation in some way. So in this mini-episode, I also want to talk about pantheism and panentheism. So I sometimes get asked about animism and pantheism within Christianity, and if it's applicable, sometimes I'll see people say they're a Christian animist or a pantheist, and then I talk to them, and it turns out they're a panentheist, which just means they're a Christian. So let's talk about what all these terms mean. Um, first, I think that people get these three terms confused because they can all be quite similar. They can even work together. So by the way, I am giving you the most basic definition. Please no hate mail about how I'm oversimplifying because I am oversimplifying, but we can't be here all day. So the simplified definition of these terms, animism, 
is the belief that all things have a soul or spiritual essence. Pantheism is a belief that all things are God or on the same level as God. Panentheism is the belief that God is within all things. So let's start with animism. Like I said, animism especially is a blanket term. So we're approaching it from the most basic definition of matter has souls of some kind. So the early church did believe, and the church now still does, that plants and animals have souls because they're animated beings. The debate, though, comes in about what is the substance of this soul and how the plant souls differ from the animal souls, which differ from the human souls. That's always been the discussion. So animism is often very specific that the soul of matter differs from one another. So they're not related at all. Essentially, the beliefs are that they're all going to be very different. So it's hard, therefore, to place animism within the system of Abrahamic spirituality because the souls in Christianity all work together because they're all related due to their relationship with the Trinity. I want to note here, some animists wouldn't say soul. Instead, they would say spiritual substance. And depending on how we define spiritual substance really would dictate our entire discussion on animism. So this one's kind of tricky. But let's move on because I think you'll see where I'm going with this. The next would be pantheism. Pantheism, in a simple definition, is that all things are God in some way. So Christianity obviously is not pantheistic because we do not believe that the tree in our front yard is on the same level as God the Father. However, Christianity is panentheistic, meaning that all things do have God or divinity within them. We have discussed God's logos, divine inspiration, being part of all creation, how we are all sparks of the divine, and we've all had the Holy Spirit breathe within us, and this includes all of nature too. And we've also discussed that nature helps point towards God, and nature has divine properties. So this isn't heretical or an out-there statement. It's just not spoken of often. And it's kind of just understood that, yes, Christianity is in many ways panentheistic. Of course, there's going to be some caveats. One person can take their panentheism and say some things and tweak it to where certain things might be on a hierarchy that's not you know, appropriate with Trinitarian theology. But again, at its core... God does work through all things, and all things have divine properties. That's part of the cosmic priesthood motif. We are to further flesh out the God in all creation through our senses, through our praise, through our love and care. All right, so that's going to wrap up our second mini-episode in our Nature Trilogy. So if you'd like, sit back, take it all in, re-listen if you'd like, or don't if you didn't like it. (laughs) but you can keep listening because the last part should already be up by the time I post this. God bless you and thanks for listening. 